Glad to see everyone's smiling faces, and I'm even glad to see those of you who aren't smiling as well. And I uh, have a few missing, but that's okay. People out and about doing various things, traveling and such, so uh, we're going to continue our study and hopefully conclude the part about uh, the resurrection of the body this, uh, this morning. So let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to be toward the end of the chapter. Of course, I'm going to do a little bit of review uh, just to kind of uh, go over what we've already studied, what we've already seen on the subject of the resurrection of the body. We know that, and we will see this even more clearly this morning, there is a very strong scriptural connection between the, uh, the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the body. Is anybody warm? Yes. Okay. Well, let's see how I can fix this. There we go. I'm trying to do it. Bear with me. Okay. Maybe that'll work. We'll adjust it afterward. So there's a, a very strong connection between the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the body. Those two are inextricably connected. And... Uh, we're going to see why that's important in just a minute, but uh, so we'll do a, a review and then we'll read a, the last uh, the last portion of Second Corinthians, or First Corinthians, chapter fifteen. So let's pray together, and then we'll get started. Our Lord, thank you so much for everyone that's here. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to meet together as a church. Thank you for uh, your love to us. Thank you for the truths of the Word of God, which help us. And uh, Lord, we we do not understand the mysterious way that you change us and that you uh, work in us by your word and by your spirit and by your truth. Lord, we, uh, we don't understand exactly how you do it, but Lord, we know that you are working in us to accomplish your will and to make us more like Christ. I pray for each person here that that, that will of yours would be fulfilled and that you would help each and every one of them to grow, to increase to uh, walk with you, to live in joyful obedience uh, to your commands. And Lord, we, we know we do not serve under a, uh, a tyrannical master. Lord, we take joy in knowing that you lead us and you direct our lives. Help us to, uh, to live for you joyfully. And Lord, as we study your word now, give us open hearts and attentiveness that we might, uh, might profit from what the Word of God says that we look at this morning. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Okay, so here's the things that we've covered on the subject of the resurrection of the body. We've seen, uh, of course, from 1 Corinthians 15, if you'll just peek down at verse number 55, of course, we know 1 Corinthians 15, the context of it is primarily the resurrection of Christ, which, of course, that bleeds over and is the basis for the resurrection of all believers. Christ is the first fruits, and then they that are Christ at His coming. And the final result of that is in verse 55. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, 
Where is thy victory? I'm going to play with the air conditioner again because it's blowing right on me, and that's not cool. It's a nice pun, right? It's a nice pun. Well, overnight I did. Let's see. Maybe this will work. There. There we go. See how that does for you. All right. Okay, so the first thing we saw is that death does not have power over the believer any longer. Death does not have power. It should not have power over the believer any longer. That does not mean that, that Christians do not live in the fear of death. In fact, the fear of death is a, we, we saw already, is a tool of the devil to prevent us from doing the will of God. You know, you think about, especially you think about the mission field, and uh, you don't know how many times traveling to churches when we were missionaries to Cambodia, we'd come back and people would, uh, one, of the, one of the most common questions we got about being missionaries in Cambodia is, aren't you afraid to live over there? And it's, and it's kind of funny and ironic because actually uh, we never did really think much about fear of, of much of anything over there, contrary to what people thought. But what was on their mind was the fear of what might happen, you know, with, this, with their ideas about what Cambodia might have been like and that kind of thing. And, uh, and of course, that, that's the reason some people, I guess, might not go to be missionaries, perhaps, and uh, might, not, uh, might not do what the Lord wants them to do, is that fear, that risk, maybe, of danger, or even what they perceive of danger, whether it's there or not. We've also seen that the troubles in life are designed, to, uh, designed by the Lord to cause us to long for the hope which we have in Christ, that He will return. And uh, we saw that in Romans 5. Then we also saw that the hope of Christ's return and our own resurrection in connection with that hope uh, causes us to groan within ourselves about this sinful flesh in which we live. And uh, we should be groaning over the sin that we deal with on a daily basis. There's not a person alive that does not deal, uh, that is a believer, that does not deal with the flesh, and it's a, every single day, every single day, this idea that somehow you wake up in the morning and you just fly above the clouds and you're not ever touched with that is not realistic, and it certainly, it wasn't true of Paul himself, Romans chapter 7, right? It wasn't true of Paul, it's not true of any of us. And honestly, I'd go even a step even further, and anybody who tries to describe their Christian life as one of just pure victory and ease all the time in regards to the flesh is not being honest, because that's just not the case. That's not scriptural. And then we should uh, we should also we also have seen that the hope of the Christian is a source of joy and expectation, and it gives us a reason to always press forward and be encouraged. It gives us a reason to never, ever despair, because we know that last week we saw that even at our life's worst. Whatever the cause might be, even at, even at worst, we know that the resurrection is still in our future, right? We know the resurrection is still in our future. I know that's, that sometimes it gets hazy and it's difficult to remember in the midst of a difficulty, but it is nevertheless true. And so, 
at the point of the lowest uh, discouragement, uh, a believer can always look up and know that uh, that there is the sun is going to rise on their on their uh, their life at some point, and they, it will be better. That's the and, and the reason I say that is it is just a fact when you study and read about and and uh, and and hear about people who who are like suicidal. One of the primary reasons for like that kind of depression that leads to suicidal, according to what people say, what they testify to is, I'm stuck. Nothing will ever be different. There's no way out. It will never change. It's that thought. But see, that is not a thought that a believer should have. That doesn't mean believers don't have that thought. They do. But we have in the Scripture something that counterbalances that tendency. And, uh, and, and, that, and that thing is, the, is hope of the resurrection at the Lord's return. We've also seen that those who have died, we do not sorrow as the world sorrows, even as we had our, uh, the memorial service for Miss Beverly Meredith yesterday, and uh, we saw, you know, we, we were reminded of her life and that kind of thing, and, and we're sorry that she's not with us, but we have not lost her. Right? We've not lost her. She's not lost. She's not forgotten. Uh, she has just, we're just temporarily separated. And so, although there's sorrow, there's joy mingled with that sorrow. And that's the, the, the unique paradox of the Christian hope that joy can be mingled with sorrow. So, you can have, out of one eye, you can have tears of joy, and out of the other, other eye, tears of sorrow. It's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. And then what we're going to see, at, just kind of to summarize uh, all of these things, uh, the Lord wants us to be tired of this God-hating world. The Lord wants us to be tired of the sin that is, dwells within us. The Lord wants us to be tired of death that we constantly have to face and experience. And the Lord wants us to be tired of infirmity and sorrow and sickness and aging and all those things. All of those things are scriptural reasons that cause us to lift up our eyes because this is our hope, right? There is something better in store for us. And so we get into 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to look down at verse number, verse 44. Let's start there, all right? It says this, it is sown a natural body. It being the body, the, the human body. It, when we read the context, which we already did last week, the human body is sown, in, uh, is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, let me, let me, this is talking about the resurrection, how that when someone dies and we bury them, it's like it's being compared to a sowing of a, of a crop, of a seed. Okay, we sow a natural body, we bear it, we commit, as they used to say in the old time, that we commit their body to the, to the grave, right? We commit their body to the grave in hopes of the resurrection, just like we commit the seed to the ground in hope of a, of a of fruit. Well, when we do that, we commit their body to the, uh, to the grave. Uh, it says here that it's a natural body is committed to the grave, but then it is raised a spiritual body. Now, I want to make sure we understand this because some of the cults, in fact, all of the cults, pretty much one, one feature of the cults 
uh, that re re recurs is, is there's often uh, error concerning who Jesus Christ is. There's often error concerning the scriptures. And then one major error of almost all cults is the nature of the resurrection of Christ. And what they'll say, like for instance, Jehovah's Witnesses will say that Jesus rose as a living spirit creature. That's their, word, that's their terminology, a living spirit creature. But in saying that, they deny that Jesus actually rose from the dead. I mentioned this last week as well. They deny his physical resurrection. But, and they might use verses like this. It is raised, a, verse 44, a spiritual body. That doesn't mean a spirit. A spirit hath not flesh and bones. Remember what the Lord said when he rose from the dead? Follow me. When Jesus rose from the dead and he was, he was showing himself to the disciples alive, he said, touch me, handle me, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones. So Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, right? When we're raised, we'll see in a minute, we're raised in like manner to the way the Lord was raised. So did Jesus have a physical body? Yes, he was not a spirit, that is, a, 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 a being without a physical body. No, he had a physical body. The disciples touched him. They felt him. And, of course, we know that even the wounds, uniquely, in fact, for the Lord, the wounds that were inflicted upon the Lord were also still present when the Lord showed himself to the disciples. So when this says a spiritual body, do not get confused that it's saying spirit. This is a body. It's a different kind of body, perhaps, but it is a body nonetheless. That is, it has physical properties. And, of course, we know there are things beyond the physical world. We'll see that in just a minute, that the Lord's body had when he rose from the dead. And so, uh, verse 44, there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Uh, if we, we went to 1 Peter, uh, I believe it's for, it might be 2 Peter, actually, it says, uh, it says that Peter longed to be clothed upon with his body, which his, his house, which is from heaven, which is referring to his body. So, again, the resurrection is not that we become spirit beings, the res like angels, for instance. Angels are our spirits. They do not have a natural body. Well, human beings are not angels. That's one thing people always get confused about. Human beings do not become a different thing when they die. Human beings are still human beings. God created us three parts, right? Does everybody know this? Body, soul, and spirit. We do not become spirits when we die. We're still body, soul, and spirit. The difference is that our body has died. And so our soul and spirit are with God, right? And that, but that's not a permanent state. It's just temporary. The Lord never intended, when God created man, man upon the earth, did God intend man to ever be without his body? No, because there was no death, right? But as it, as it is, man sinned against God, and so death can't, entered into the world, and so man returned, his body returns to dust. But his spirit returns to God. But one day, God will, the Lord will reverse that, and he'll raise the dead those that are in Christ, and he'll change us, and we will have a new body. And so human beings are not angels. We have body, soul, and spirit, and that is a permanent feature. The nature of man is always that way. And that's one reason we look forward to the resurrection. And so we read down in verse number 
uh, 45, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, that's talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Now, of course, the last Adam is referring to Jesus, and this is a reference to his resurrection. Howbeit that which was not, that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. Notice that. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Verse 8, uh, 48. As is the earthy, so are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Notice this comparison between the heavenly and the earthy. Interesting, the word earthy. That's not a word we use ever. I mean, you might say, you might say, uh, like when people paint, sometimes they say, well, that has a kind of an earthy tone or something like that. They'll usually say it has earth tones, right? What's interesting about this word earthy, I don't know that there's a big difference between earthy and earthly, but what is interesting about this particular word, this is the only place it's found in the Bible. And it is directly, this word as an adjective, earthy, it is, its root word is the word for dust or dirt. It's interesting because the reason it says that is talking about Adam in the garden. From what was Adam made? Adam and Eve were made from the dust of the earth. Dust, I mean, we think of dust as this, you know. This is what we think of as dust, you know. But that's not, scripture. that's not dust. Dust is dirt or earth. God made Adam from that. Listen now, when God made Adam, he was of that, uh, his essential nature was of the dirt. That is, of the earth. Adam, the Bible says, Adam came from the earth, right? That was one thing that confused the Jews, remember? When the Lord has conversations in the book of John with the Jews, I think it's John chapter 8, about, is it 8, about the bread of life? He says, he, he tells them that they were of the earth. They were born of the earth from, from the ground up. Jesus said, I, but I came from heaven. And that's totally different. Now, here's the thing. As Adam came from, was made of the earth, the earth was his home. The things of earth, whether it be the, the, the physical appetites, whether it be the, the five senses, you know, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. I probably missed one. I'm sure I missed one. The five senses, what we say is our physical body has five senses by which we interact with the physical world. And our spirit, on the other hand, is our spiritual sense by which we, we interact with God in the spiritual world, okay? And of course, for people that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, they are born into this world and their spirit is dead, that's why they have no interaction with God. It, do, it, does, it doesn't mean non-functional. It means they have no relation to God in, in, his, in the spiritual world. But for us who have been made alive by the Spirit of God, we have been quickened. That part of us, that's why we, we have a relationship with God and why we can, because 
our spirit has been quickened. But yet, we bear the image of Adam. The Bible says that Adam was made in the image of, originally, Adam was made in the image of, come on now, don't be shy, was made in the image of God. But then you find Adam and Eve sinned, and then, uh, and then they had children, and then the Bible says that Adam and Eve bore a child in their likeness. So Cain and Abel and Seth, Adam and Eve's children, whose names we know, there were others, Cain and Abel and Seth were not made in the same way that Adam and Eve were in the image of God, but were made in the image of Adam and Eve, which at that point was fallen. And so when you have the image of Adam, you are made of that mold, and I am made of that mold. We are earth. We are earthy. We are dirt. Shouldn't we remember that, Lord? You know, you see that in the Psalms, right? Lord, remember, we're just dust. We're just dust. And that's what the Lord's reminding. We're weak, you know. We're prone to failure. We're prone to corruption both physically and morally. Right? Listen, it is very hard. I'll just be just being, being frank with, with everyone in here. It is very, very difficult for us to live in such a way. I heard robbing around. It is very difficult for us to live in such a way where we pay less attention to the physical things that we deal with of the earth, earthy, those things which bombard our five senses, right, than it is to pay attention to the spiritual things, right? That's why the Lord actually says to, for us to actively set your affection on things above. It is very natural for us to pay attention to things of the earth, and that doesn't mean all those things are evil, but it's just we live here, we're of this earth. This is our natural habitat. But the Lord is, He's saved us and He's changed us and He's given us His Spirit and He's told us, you have a future that's not of the earth. You have a future that's of, of, of heaven, like the Lord of heaven. I mean, how many of you have ever tried to read your Bible, a spiritual exercise, albeit you do use your physical eyes, how many of you have ever tried to read your Bible when you're sleeping? I mean, that's, a, that's a, an exercise in futility, as they might say, right? It's very, very difficult to do. And I do it all the time. How many of you ever tried to pray a spiritual exercise when you're sleepy? You know, a lot of times I was complaining to Pastor Stewart because, uh, you know, when I'm up here during the day and he's here, he'll often make coffee for us at 2 o'clock. But the problem is 2 o'clock is right after lunch. And so you eat lunch, and then from lunch until coffee time, it's hard to stay awake. You know, those carbs get working. You know what? As much as you want to stay awake to read your Bible or pray or whatever you need to do, that part of you that's of the earth, you know what I'm saying? The physical part of you is just overwhelming. You get hungry. It's hard to think. It's hard to do anything. Why? That physical, listen, that's Adam. It's not bad. All of us are not bad. But it's just real. It's real life. But it will not always be that way. It will not always be that way. In the same way that we bear the image of Adam, in other words, we have his nature. Now, we are not the same identity as Adam. 
but we have his essential nature. In the same way, we will bear the image of Christ in the resurrection. The image of Adam will be erased from us. All right? We will be like Christ. That's what that means. In fact, Romans 8.29 says this, that God has predestinated us, right, to be conformed to His image. In other words, what that means is, as a believer, there is nothing you can possibly do to change that future. It is predestinated. Now, to bear Adam's image does not mean that we lose our uniqueness or individuality. No, to bear Adam's image means that we have the same basic nature common to Adam and all of his descendants. That's why when I describe, when, when I'm just trying to describe to you what, what we might call the human, you know, the human life, the way it is, what it, what it means to be earthy, I'm just dry, I'm not, I'm not being very theological at all. What I'm doing is drawing from my own experience as a son of Adam. And I know that you can relate. You know why? Because you are the same. We have the same nature. We have the same nature. So that might manifest a little bit different, but it's essentially the same. And so when Christ returns and it says here, Verse 49, and as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. We'll bear Christ's image. What that means is it's a comparison. It's the same thing, our essential nature, not our identity. We will still be ourselves, but we'll have a completely different nature, that like Christ. That like Christ. Real quick, let's look at Philippians chapter 3. Look at this at the context. Verse 20, Philippians 3.20. Remember, we're talking about the, 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 um, the coming of Christ is linked to the resurrection of the body. The coming of Christ is linked to the resurrection of the body. Jesus does not just come and set up his kingdom and leave us as we are. Nor is there a resurrection without his coming. The resurrection, these two events are together. That's why I have to talk, if I'm talking about the coming of Christ, you have to talk about the resurrection. It's all together, all right? Look at chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 20. Now look at the mentions here. See the connection. For our conversation is in heaven. From whence, from heaven, also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is that referring to? We're looking for him what? Exactly. We're looking for him to come. Exactly. Now notice the connection. Verse 21. Who shall change our vile body? If you ever ask yourself this, notice vile body. If you ever ask yourself this, and people do ask ask themselves this. I've asked myself this. And you have too because I know you're a son of Adam just like me. Why do I always do this? I'm so stupid. 
Why do I want to do this all the time? Why? What is wrong with me? I'll tell you what's wrong with you. I'll tell you what's wrong with you. You are a son of Adam or a daughter. Just care. You are a descendant of Adam. That's what's wrong with you. Your nature is as his. And I, my, mine is the same. That's what's wrong with you. <laughs> it's very, actually very simple. And what's wrong with you is not unique to you. <laughs> what's wrong with you is what's wrong with all of us. You know, some, I guess in some way the truth of that, when I've asked myself that, what is wrong with me? Why can't I, why can't I overcome this? Why can't I do better? Why can't I whatever? I've asked myself that question. And there's, there's a certain, I guess, liberation maybe in knowing the answer. Now, that doesn't make it easy, but at least it helps us understand that this is common. This is common. And if it's common to all of us, that means there is victory. There is victory to be had. Who shall change? Verse number 21. Our vile body. There's your problem. There's my problem. That it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Notice that subdue all things. In other words, that earthy part of you that constantly wants to dominate everything you do will be subdued. In other words, defeated. That the Lord will defeat sin in us. Now, of course, I'm, we're going to see in just a minute as we go to 1 John, we're going to see that just because the Lord at his coming, we look for him from heaven, just because we know that He will subdue that sin in us, He will defeat it, and we will have ultimate victory over sin does not mean we just, well, well, that hasn't come yet, so I'm going to just whatever. I'm going to just like, I'm not even going to mess with it. I'm going to just live however and whatever. That is not right. That does not follow. In fact, rather the opposite. Look at 1 John, if you would. 1 John. First John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. I don't know why this came to my mind, but yesterday we were in downtown Greenville for the fall for Greenville. You know, I think of myself and how I grew up. And when I was younger, my family frequented fall for Greenville. I remember going there as a kid. If you think there's not a drinking problem in Greenville, you just need to go to fall for Greenville. I would say, what do you think, David? Maybe 80%, 70% of people at Fall for Greenville were carrying alcohol or were drunk completely. I mean, just guessing. And I think, you know, because I, I mean, I, I was one of those kids running around uh, years ago. Therefore, the world knoweth us not. You know, it's just incompatible. 
utterly incompatible. Verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Notice that. We talked about this before, if you remember, but I'll just give you a brief reminder. Now are we the sons of God. Number one, you are not as you shall be. So have hope. The Lord's going to finish what he's doing. Number two, even with all your faults and failures and mine as well, even though we fail and we do not have victory in all the areas that, you know, in which we want to have victory, we right now, for those that have trusted in Christ, we right now are the children of God. Our, listen, our condition, our, our relationship with God is secure. It is secure. We talked about this before. You know, sometimes when we see ourselves and the struggles and things we have, it causes us to, the questions to arise in our mind about, well, do I, do I, am I, am I? Look, look. Our salvation rests upon one thing, and that is that Christ bore our sins on the cross, right? That he was buried and that he rose again, and that we have trusted, we are right now trusting in his blood. And so the Lord says, now are we the sons of God. Take hope. You are not what you will be. But he says about the future... And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall see him as he is. Notice that. Here's what I want you to see. It says, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So the we shall see him as he is, is the cause for our being like him. So here's what happens. The Lord returns. And for the first time, all of us will see Christ face to face without any ambiguity, without any uh, obscurity, in clear vision, face to face, we will see him, right? And the effect and the influence of that event, this is what the verse says, will change us to be like him. Now, this is a biblical principle. This is, I know this is a, talking about a particular event when Christ comes, but this is also a biblical principle that can kind of be extracted out, and we'll see it in other, other verses in just a minute, how the effect of seeing the Lord changes us. Now, ultimately, at the consummation of it all, when the Lord returns, we see Him without any, no, no, no with clear eyes, with open eyes, face to face, we see the Lord right before us, and at that moment, we will be like Him, just like Him in every way. We will have His image stamped on our nature forever, Right? Look at, for, hold your place here, look at 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. First Corinthians chapter 13. Verse 12. 
what it says. For now, notice the now, at the present time, you know, think of 1 John chapter 3, now are we the sons of God. For now we see through a glass darkly. What is a glass? What is a glass? It's a mirror. A mirror. In the, in the, old, the old times, it's called a looking glass. So you'd use it to look at yourself. Right? For now we see through a glass, notice the next word, darkly. Darkly. What does that mean? What that means is, is as if a person is looking in the mirror and the reflection they see is obscured, right? It's obscured. It, it is not, the image they see with their eyes is not a, an accurate, fully accurate representation of the real, right? You think you go into one of, these, one of these funny houses, you know, these, what do they call them? The, you know, where the mirror, have all these different kind of mirrors. What do they call those things? House of Mirrors. Thank you, Ari. Exactly. And you see all these mirrors and it distorts the picture and you see yourself really tall and skinny and, and you see yourself really short and fat and, you know, you do it and everybody, it's, it's a fun time. But that's, it's, it's, I don't know if that's exactly the same as being darkly, but it definitely obscures what the real image is. And that's what this, the Lord says, now we see through a glass darkly. In other words, our view of things, the Lord himself, I mean, we have his word and that's all we need, right? But even still, our view of the Lord, but not only that, our view of ourselves is still obscured because now we see through a glass darkly. It's obscured. But then, what's it say? Face to face. Now, following that, in other words, when we see the Lord face to face. Now, I know in part. But then shall I know even as also I am known. That's not talking about seeing, knowing the Lord. We say, I know in part. Of course, that's with reference to the Lord. But then he says, I shall know even as I am known. That means we will know ourselves as the Lord knows us. That means that our, what, the way we view ourselves is not exactly accurate either. But notice it comes at the moment when we see him face to face. All right, look at uh, Psalm number 17. Psalm 17. Verse number 11, uh, I'm sorry, verse number 15. Now the context of this is the wicked, verse 9, the wicked that oppress me. There's a description of the wicked. And then in verse 15, he says, David says, As for me, I will behold thy face, remember, face to face, unobscured view of God. David says, I will see God without any obscurity, face to face, not through a glass, but in person. In righteousness, I shall be satisfied when I awake, a reference to the resurrection. Notice what it says. 
with thy likeness. Way back, 1,000 years before any of the New Testament truth about the resurrection of the body, you see David referencing being awakened out of the sleep of death and seeing the Lord face to face and the effect of that being, he will be like the Lord in every way. Now, go back to 1 John if you would. Chapter 3. And this will be the last thing we look at. <laughs> but that's then. When we see the Lord face to face without any intervening obscurity, at that moment we will be just like Him. His image will be stamped onto our being forever. No more sin, no more death, no more corruption. We'll have a body like His body, a spiritual body without the boundaries, limitations, and corruption and death that we live with now. But what about now? You know, almost all spiritual truth in the Bible, at least that I'm aware of, that is future, has a present effect upon us. Verse 3 of 1 John chapter 3 says this, And every man that hath this hope in him. What hope? Now listen, don't just throw your own ideas in the verse. That's, well, a lot of people do that. They see this hope and they, they presume it means this or that. What is the context? Verse 2. The hope of Christ's return connected with the resurrection of the body. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. You know what that means? The knowledge that the Lord, that you're going to see the Lord face to face and he is the, at that moment is going to make you just like him. And his image is going to be stamped on you. Will affect the way that you live now. And you will have a desire to do everything in your power by the grace of God to live in such a way that you, your life is characterized by the image of Christ and the influence of Christ's nature in your life. One day, that's your future, right? One day, that's your future. And that fact will help you. I, now I, I can't, I, honestly, I cannot explain how all this happens. I know it's true of me, but I cannot explain exactly how. But I just know that the reality that one day I will be like Christ makes me want to be like Christ now. I know I'm going to be like him without the corruption and all that sin and all those evil things that I have to deal with every day. So that makes me want to live free from the bondage of those things now. Okay? Now look at 2 Corinthians for our final verse, chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And you see this truth repeated. These truths just overlap. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse number, verse number 15, 16, 17 is a reference to the Jews who read the Old Testament with a veil over their face. They don't get it, they don't understand it. Verse 17, 
Verse 16, nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, talking about the heart of Israel, the veil shall be taken away. Verse 17, now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now look at verse 18. But we all, that's talking about believers now, with open face, that is no veil like the Jews had. Now this is not face to face yet. But this is talking about there's nothing covering our eyes. But we all with open face beholding, notice this, as in a glass, a mirror, the glory of the Lord. Now stop. This is amazing. When you look at a mirror, what do you see? You see yourself. But this verse says, when you look in the mirror, you see what? The glory of God. That means that God is doing something in me and in you such that when you look in the mirror, you see the Lord. Whoa. <laughs> Think about that. That means the Lord is putting His image in you such that when you look in the mirror, you see Him. And more and more, when you look in the mirror, you see less and less of that image of Adam and more and more of the image of the Lord. That's what you see. Look in the mirror. Look what it says. Beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. Notice what it says. What is the effect of you seeing the, the, you seeing the Lord's image in you in a reflection, what is the effect? Are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. It goes back to the principle of this. When you, the more a person sees the Lord, the more they want to be like the Lord. The more that influence makes them like the Lord. Now, at the, at the consummation of it all, when the Lord returns, that, in, that moment, we will be like Him 100% because we will see Him without obscurity, face to face, not in, a, and not in a glass, not in a mirror. But here and now, we look in the mirror and we see God changing us. We see the Lord working in us and that fact changes us to be more and more like Him. And, and then once we're more and more like Him, that makes us even more and more like Him. That's what the Lord is doing. The effect of seeing His face stamped in you makes you want to be more like Him. That's First John chapter 3, verse 3. Let's pray.